Hello, Bethel fandom. Welcome to Keep Singing, a Bethel and Beth Green and Daryl Dixon podcast. I am your host, Sunny, also known as Dynamic Symmetry on Tumblr and Twitter and other places. And welcome to episode... God, you know what? I'm actually not fucking sure. <laughs> and I did not check beforehand and I cannot remember. In our reading series, wherein I am reading chapter by chapter, sometimes partial chapter by partial chapter, depending on length, I am reading Vampire Cats Burn, my safe up here with you, and a one-shot of my choice. Uh, today we are getting Shwoozy's Hope is the Thing, which is, well, I mean, I selected it because... Burn is not a downer. Burn is actually it's pretty clearly approaching a porny chapter, which I'm very, very much looking forward to. Um, I'm, I'm super excited that we're there, by the way. I've been sort of like, oh god, what are they going to find? Because, like, you know, the, even if you even if you love slow burn, and I absolutely love slow burn, if you know me, you're just kind of like, when is it going to stop just smoldering and really start the burning? And it seems like we're going to start the burning. I'm super happy. So that's not such a downer. Uh, Safe up here with you. I mean, it was fucked up last time. It is real fucked up now. I mean, like, if you know it, I'm assuming most of you who are listening to this have already read it. Um, so you will know that it is. It gets. It gets super fucked up. Not as fucked up as everything where it belongs, but it gets there. Uh, and this is. This is just for a warning. Burn almost gets porny. Save Up Here With You gets porny. Not in a good way. In a really fucked up way. Um, I think this was the chapter that kicked it up to an E rating, actually. Uh, so yeah, yeah, like, just be aware of that. Um, and, 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 and in fact, I actually kind of got to do my, uh, well, not exactly how I normally would do my phone sex voice, but I technically did get to do my phone sex voice, you know, with the moaning and whatnot, so that was kind of fun. Um, yeah, listening to it to edit was sort of interesting. I was blushing. I was like, oh my goodness, I don't know if I should be hearing this. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and anyway, yeah, so that's happening. And, and because it's such a fucking downer and it's so fucked up, and it's gonna get worse. But I, I was like, okay, we need to close this off with a dramatic shift in tone, but an up note. So... Uh, Shwoozy slash Molly's fic is, is happy and sweet and light and just, it was a joy to read. I always love reading Molly's stuff. Uh, reads really well aloud, great mouth feel. Uh, this was just wonderful. I had such a good time. I had a really good time doing music for it, as you'll see. Uh, I, I kind of managed to pull together kind of an explosions in the sky type thing, which is great because I love explosions in the sky. And, uh, well, I, I, th I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, before we move on to first burn, then safe up here with you, and then hope is the thing. A uh, quick bit of news, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, you might have seen on Tumblr the other day I said that I have discovered that SoundCloud, where I host this thing, SoundCloud has laid off almost half of their workforce. That is bad. I don't think you need to have a degree in business to know that that is a bad thing. SoundCloud, I, I did some research, it's actually been losing money pretty consistently for a while now. So if, if you've been tracking that, this is not altogether surprising, but I was surprised. And although there, I think, is no 
imminent sign that SoundCloud's going to close up. This is the kind of stuff that a company does before it closes its doors. So I am investigating moving this to a, to a different place. Uh, right now, it looks like I'm going to shift it to Podbean. I did some research. Podbean looks good. Uh, I actually already have an account there because I wanted to kind of fiddle around with the interface. Um, it should be a reasonably smooth migration if I go that route. Those of you who subscribe via iTunes should not have to change anything. Um, I mean, we'll see, but it, it looks like I can do that without anybody having to, like, resubscribe to it on iTunes, which would be ideal. Uh, so that is probably going to be happening sometime in the next couple of weeks, maybe sooner. Uh, it all depends on how I do my time management and how easy it actually turns out to be. But yeah, we, we are going to be leaving SoundCloud. Now, what that means for my SoundCloud account is that, um, well, I mean, I'm just going to let it lapse and I will not be cross-posting. Uh, there will no be no new episodes, but the existing episodes will stay there, and in fact my uh, pro account does not run out until next January, which means that all of the existing episodes will stay there. I will not be closing the account down, so if you want to download or listen to stuff on the SoundCloud page, you can still do that until next January, so far as I'm aware, but after that I will not be renewing, so most of the episodes will disappear. Uh, but that's fine, because we'll be on Podbean, and Assuming everything goes as planned, nothing will be lost, and I will be continuing to do things as I have continued to do them. Uh, I'm actually kind of excited. Uh, I don't dislike SoundCloud at all, but um, Podbean looks cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to moving to a different platform. And to bring us into my Patreon spiel, something that I have to say, and I also said this on Tumblr, and it's super important. Those of you who donate via the PayPal tip jar or or contribute monthly via Patreon, you guys are allowing me to do this without it being a huge fucking problem. Because just about every podcasting host I would want to use requires me to pay them uh, in order for me to, you know, be able to keep episodes online and not have to pull them down as I upload new ones or, you know, restricting me maybe to uploading like only an hour or two a month, which is, you know, most of my episodes are an hour and a half to two hours long. That would not fucking work. So I'm going to have to pay some money. I'm paying money already, and I'm going to have to pay some money again. But, I mean, the great thing about that is, you guys who are so generous, you are making this possible. It is it is not going to be a huge hit. Uh, in fact, like, most or all of the costs in this case sh should be covered. And I don't have to worry about that because of the donations that I'm getting via PayPal and Patreon. So, I mean, if you were wondering about whether or not your dollars make a material difference, they fucking do. This is the kind of situation under which I appreciate them just unbelievably much. I always do anyway, but you guys are kind of saving my ass here. So, to take that into Patreon, I pay out of pocket in order to run this. Uh, a great deal of labor goes into it. I do a lot of editing, especially with the reading series, because I, you know, do music and stuff, and I do it all by myself. So anytime you can toss like a dollar or two at me, one time via the PayPal tip jar, which is linked on the website, right on the front page, keep singing pod keep singing podcast.wordpress.com. That may change by the way. The site might also move to Podbean. That is great. If you donate monthly via Patreon, link to the top of my Tumblr page, dynamicsymmetry.tumblr.com. Helps me cover my costs, helps me justify the amount of time I put into this. It's just generally great. If you can't afford to, I don't advertise this except on Tumblr, and an expanded listenership is fucking fantastic. So if you 
like this, if you enjoy listening to it, if you want me to keep doing it, just like reblog stuff. Word of mouth is great for something like this. Yeah, let people know if you enjoy it. It's great. And I super appreciate it. Okay, I've been talking for like 10 fucking minutes, so let's go ahead and get to burn. After burn, we'll come safe up here with you again, and then Shuzi's hope is the thing. And I will see you on the flip side. Burn by the Vampire Cat Chapter 6 Creatures Great and Small Part 2 All he remembers now is how he felt when he thought she was bit, and how he felt when he saw she was not. It's a sick seesaw of emotions that reminds him of the night he found her, or she found him. He can't remember anymore. Not that it matters. Either way, it's like being burnt only for the wound to instantly be soothed. You feel the sting, the pain, and then it's just there long enough to make you draw breath to scream, and then it's gone, like it was never there. But you remember it. You remember the start of the fear, and that's the bit that kills you. That's the bit that sends you over the edge, makes you doubt yourself. And even though you knew it didn't happen, and you know you're safe and everyone else is safe too, you can't shake it. It's there, that knowledge of how it could have gone. That terrible thought of how it should have gone. And then you get neurotic about it, and you hear Merle being a dick in your head and telling you you're like old Lady Murray who lived next door to them in the trailer and checked the lock on her door 17 times every single time she went out of the house, who once told him that she had to wash her hands before and after she ate for exactly 90 seconds. Merle used to laugh at her, call her a crazy old bat, but Daryl always felt sorry for her. She was alone and poor and frightened out her skin, and there was no one to help her, no one to reassure her. When she pulled the door open, a single walker trotted out. It had once been man, most likely the one who ran the shop. If not for the fact that he was rotten, he would have been every cliché in the book, from his long black hair and goatee to the black Sabbath t-shirt and torn jeans he wore. His arms were tattooed, and he had an ornate silver cross hanging round his neck next to a name badge which said, Sid. Daryl had put him down in under a second, body slumped on the floor, eyes yellow and staring. Beth was first into the storeroom, knife still out but eyes keen and scanning the shelves, the cupboards, the floor for the source of the whimpering. And he was right behind her, hand on her shoulder, adrenaline pumping, and all he wanted to do was get out. This felt too much like Bessie again, fumbling around in the dark and knowing something bad is going to jump out and bite you. The room wasn't big, but it was full of overturned furniture and broken shelves making it difficult to navigate and easy for something to squirrel itself away. I think it's behind there, she said eventually, pointing to a table lying on its side and wedged up against a locker. He nodded, and they moved into the gloomy depths of the room, Beth going down to one knee and peering into the tunnel created by the broken shop furnishings. Yeah, it's here, she said. I can see its eyes. Looking back now, he can't believe how reckless they'd been. They'd made so many assumptions that day, far more than he thinks he'll ever be comfortable with. They assumed that what was back there was a dog, and not some wild, rabid animal that could claw and bite and mark them for death with its teeth and nails. They just assumed that if it was a dog, that Sid hadn't already bitten it. Fuck knows what happens to dogs when they get bit. They assumed that it was somehow just here, and didn't stop to think how it got there. It was the last one that got them. Got them good. The dog had to have come from somewhere. It had to have gotten to the shop somehow and ended up trapped with Sid. 
and it couldn't have been all too long ago as it hadn't died from starvation or dehydration. But they didn't think of that, didn't think of any of it, didn't think there could be another exit into the storeroom, which was damn stupid as all these shops needed a fire exit that opened into a back alley. Beth was on her belly, sliding on the floor toward the whimpering, when he heard the creak, the sound of a door opening. It gave him a second, but only a second, and then the back door to the shop bounced open, flooding the room with tepid morning sunlight and the guttural moans of dead men. And dust motes swirled in front of his eyes, and the scent of rot and ruin filled his nostrils. In a heartbeat, he was running to the exit, running into the decayed dead jaws, shouting for Beth to leave it, to get the fuck out of here, to go, just to go. He heard himself telling her he'd meet her at the road, and he wished he'd never said that, because it's too much like before. It's too much of the same, and when he thinks on it now, it's part of that sting of what if. What. If. And he's tired of history repeating itself. He stabbed the first and second walker quickly, both crumpling to the ground much like Sid, neither a challenge, neither a threat. But then the door crashed to the ground, and it seemed like all the walkers in the world poured through. He remembers fragments, and he's grateful for that because he doesn't know what he'd do if he remembers more, how bad that sting might be. He knows it would be worse than it is now, knows he'd never get that cold, clammy feeling of what could have been from running down his back. He guesses he's grateful for that, at least. But he's really not. He remembers that he'd screamed at Beth to go, and seen that she was still on the floor, sliding between the shelves. He remembers thinking that she'll end up trapped there, just like the dog, just like Sid. He remembers downing walkers with his crossbow, and thinking that this is too much like last time, that she'll get out and he'll end up chasing a fucking car with a white cross all night long. Mostly he remembers shouting. He's not sure if it was to attract the hungry hordes as they flailed through that door, or if he thought his shouting would get Beth moving. He's not sure if he thought the old rotten woman looming over Beth's legs would hear and come for him instead, but mostly he remembers the sound of his own voice, his screams. And she listened. She'd rolled over and stabbed upwards, movements swift and supple, and the walker collapsed next to her. Go! she shouted to him. Go! I ain't leaving you. He took down another walker, a child this time. He found he barely cared, barely noticed. He knows now it wasn't as big or as bad as it seemed. He knows this, but there still ain't nothing worse than thinking Beth Green was gonna die. Thinking you failed. Again. They both got out. He's not sure how. Never will be. He gives that to the sting. To the burn. To the clammy hand down his back. But they both got out. Him through the front, her through the back. And he hadn't even bothered then to kill the walkers following him. Not that he couldn't have done it. There were fewer than he thought originally. He can chuckle at himself now for thinking it was all the walkers in the world, but not really. Instead, he's taken off swinging toward the back of the buildings, hoping to meet her from the other side. And before he was even halfway there, she came flying around the corner, all legs and wild hair, face flushed and eyes wide. He'd shouted her name and she'd gone down, two of the dead falling on her, yellow teeth snapping close to her ear while a third launched itself at her boots, mouthing its way along the leather and hissing angrily at finding no purchase. He grabbed the first two, hauled them off her back while she kicked at the one on her legs. He knows he stabbed them, but he can't remember what he used, and part of him thinks it was his fingers in their eyes. He gives that over to the what-ifs, too. She killed the last one, stabbing its neck before hopping to her feet and stomping it once. Harsh, efficient, gory. 
and then they took care of the rest. And they were both splattered with gore and blood and both panting heavily. And he could barely believe that minutes before she'd been singing and smiling, and the thought of losing her was the furthest thing from his mind. But when he looked at her, she was holding her side, and he could see blood on her shirt. And the world tilted as he marched to her, and, without preamble, yanked her jacket and vest up, shoved the men's scarf she wore around her neck to the ground, looking for the source of the blood, not the bite. He wouldn't allow himself to think the word bite. He still won't. That belongs to the what-ifs. She told him that he needed to stop worrying, that she could take care of herself, and she hadn't been bit. Didn't he hear? Hadn't. Been. Bit. But he checked anyway. He checked to stave off the guilt. He checked for his peace of mind. He checked because it's bullshit when they say you can't remember pain. Because he can, and does, and he never wants to feel the pain of losing her again. The fact was, he would have stripped her in the street if he could have, and not felt the tiniest hint of shame. But she was okay. No bites, no tooth marks, and the blood came from a graze on her ribs beneath her breast. And he felt the fight go out of him, relief washing over him like a wave, and he'd nearly fallen to his knees in front of her. And it would have been okay. And she would have been okay. And he still can't imagine what it would have been like to lose her, because he doesn't think he can do it a second time. He just ain't that strong. No one is. And he pulled her to him and kissed her forehead, hard and long, and he told her he was sorry. And she told him he didn't need to be, and it was as much her fault as it was his. And he'd said something about unnecessary risks, and she'd said something about choosing what you risk your life for. And then she'd slung her backpack off her shoulder and pulled the ties open and presented him with a cowering, smelly, emaciated puppy. Meet Bo, she said triumphantly. Because she's Beth, and she'd probably named him before they even got him. And because he's Daryl, he checked her for bites another four times before they even got into the car. The fire is dwindling when he gets back inside. He can hear Beth and Bo in the lounge, her soft voice and his low woofs, her giggles and his small puppy snorts, and he feels like a smug asshole as he smiles to himself and hangs the sheep up in the hall. He thinks this is what normal feels like, though he wouldn't know shit about normal. All he knows is what it ain't. It ain't screaming fights and black eyes. It ain't the bite of a belt buckle against your back. It ain't your old man snoring on a couch, the smell of cheap perfume and pussy on his hands while your ma sits dead-eyed and hopeless cradling a bottle of cheap booze. It ain't your brother packing all he owns into a small backpack and slamming the door behind him so loudly that for a wonderful, bliss-filled second you don't hear your ma sobbing. It ain't nothing like that. He thinks maybe it's something like this. Thinks this is what it's like to live in a home with a person you care about and do normal shit like shop and get a pet, cook and read in front of the fire. No fights, no rage, no hurt. And the only crying is the type you do together. He wonders if he's doing it right, if he's got this. He thinks he does. He's pretty damn sure she'd tell him if he wasn't, but still he wonders. Maybe because it's so easy. Maybe because he thinks it should be screaming and crying and fighting, hurling insults, and when you run out of those hurling cups and plates, pots and pans. And it ain't. Ain't nothing like that at all. And he's waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for it all to fall apart, 
She tells him it won't. But he knows it will. He doesn't have a watch, but it feels like it's late, really late, and somehow the time got away from him this evening. He wants to believe it's just the buzz from the day wearing off, not that they did much other than read and play with the dog, but the reality is it was the way she sat between his legs, rested her head on his chest, and how it had been nothing, nothing at all. Naturalist breathing and walking to plant kisses into her hair as she read, how his arm had curled around her shoulders and he let his fingers slip inside her shirt and caressed the skin beneath until her breath hitched and her flesh erupted with goosebumps. And it got nothing to do with buzzes and everything to do with drawing out every moment they have, every second. Because despite everything she says, he knows deep down inside, deep in that place where he keeps Merle's voice, that it could end in the blink of an eye. Yeah, you better shit or get off the pot. Merle. Always oh, fucking Merle. But he doesn't take it on. Not now. Not when the world is good and calm. Merle has no place here, and neither does his old man, nor his ma. They just don't, because this place is theirs, and it's easy to pretend that it will be forever, as he moves to linger in the doorway of the candlelit lounge where the light is dim and the shadows alive, and all he wants to do is go to her, go to her and hold her and kiss her, and never let go again. This is them. It feels like them. Him in a doorway, waiting to get her attention, hoping she'll notice him before he stares for too long. But she doesn't notice, not for a while at least, because she's kneeling on the floor with her back to him, settling bow on a pillow and pile of raggedy blankets and tattered towels. The book lies on the coffee table, discarded and forgotten, as it should be. Yeah, it ain't a great book, ain't great at all. But it's a book, and that's more than he could have hoped for a few months ago. Fuck you, Dixon, he thinks to himself, complaining about a book like you have a choice. Like your whole goddamn world isn't in this house. Like you have a right to it. To any of it. The guitar sits in the corner. Somehow it hadn't been crushed in the shop and he'd pulled it out through one of the shattered windows. She plays sometimes. Never hallelujah, but she plays. She still plays. She still sings. For his part, Bose adjusted well. To them. To his surroundings. To his new name although heaven knows why she chose it. She'd cleaned him up when they got home that day, given him little bits of tin viennas and small helpings of porridge in the morning. He'd been quiet and scared for a few days, cowering in the corners and jumping at any sharp sound, and then he suddenly blossomed into everything a puppy should be. Cheerful, goofy, hyperactive. And even Beth had seemed calmer, back in her element, caring for something that wasn't him. She asked him what kind of a dog he thought Bo was, and he told her something with mud in it, and she playfully punched his shoulder and gone to wrestle with the puppy on the floor. And if he didn't think it was stupid to have taken the dog on before he did then, before he realized that they could never go anywhere without it, couldn't leave it locked up here to starve if they didn't come back, and going anywhere with it was akin to a death sentence, then he didn't care. Because somehow they'd saved something other than each other. And that was all that mattered. Bo's tired, curling up into the bedding, skinny tail making a slow, gentle thump, thump, thump against one of the pillows. It's good, though, because there ain't nothing like having a young puppy missing its mother crying all night. He knows because Merle made a habit of trying to breed dogs every now and then. Said it was the big time. They'd make thousands and it'd be easy money. 
Problem was, Merle couldn't care for a dog to save his life. Fuck, Merle could barely care for himself. And Daryl ended up walking the streets, trying to find homes for sick puppies. He had no hope of looking after himself. But this is different. Feels nothing like Merle and his bullshit. This is Beth, and if anyone can coax life out of the dead and depressed, it's her. Bo didn't stand a chance. Neither did he. Neither did anyone on this whole fucking doomed planet, because once Beth Green had you in her clutches, the only way out was up. You leave better off than you came, if you leave it all. And he knows that ain't likely. Ain't even the remotest possibility. Her shirt hitches up as she moves, exposing that band of white flesh on her back he doesn't think he'll ever get out of his head. Not since that night when he'd kissed her and touched her and had his hands on her like a man possessed. She's pale like snow and smooth like silk, and even though he knows how she feels under his fingers, he wants to touch her again, put his mouth on her, on it, and plant a chain of kisses across her belly, mouth of that shameless flare of her hip while she grips his hair, as her fingernails scratch at his scalp and her knees buckle, so he has to hold her up or pull her down. He tries to look away. He can't. It's just become easier to be afraid. And then she stills, spine straightening, head cocked as if she's heard something. There's no stress in her pose, though, no worry. Ain't like she heard the gate or the barrier of cans and cutlery outside. Ain't like she's afraid. No, she knows it's him. Knows he's sensed his eyes on her. Knows she can feel his lust heavy on her. Knows he should be embarrassed and clear his throat or make some noise that he was just on his way in that he hadn't been watching how the candlelight outlines her curves, how her hair looks like fire, and her body looks like earth. But he can't. Because he doesn't lie to Beth Green. That stray lock of hair bounces against her cheek again, and he remembers how her skin felt when he tucked it behind her ear. How she was smooth and silky. How she smelled of rosemary and sage and musk. He wants to touch it again. Tells himself he wants to pull her into his arms again and listen to her read bad fiction. Let her hair stick to his lips. But that isn't what he wants. Isn't what he wants at all. She stands and turns. It's slow but sure, and when her eyes meet his, it's like she sees his thoughts. It ain't nothing new, really. He's never been able to hide anything from her anyway. Not his blurted confessions, or his constant semi-arousal in the dark hours of night as she lies pressed against him, body flushed, limbs tangled with his. He's open and honest and laid bare like he's never been before. And he's okay with it. Okay with her seeing it and knowing it, even if he doesn't know where it will lead even if this turns into another aborted attempt, or nothing at all. It doesn't matter. It does matter. Her expression gives nothing away. She's Beth Green. She has a good game face, and somehow that makes him feel vulnerable, because he knows he's obvious, knows he always has been. But then he's always known that Beth holds him in her hands, that she'll lead and he'll follow, that he'll be more faithful than any dog, and twice as protective. Good boy. Good dog. The curtains are open, and for a second he's distracted by the very light snow falling outside. He wonders if he should tell her about it, wonders if she'd like to go outside and see. But his mouth is dry, and his palms are wet, and his heart is thudding too loudly in his ears. He looks back to her, at the blown pupils ringed with the tiniest line of the blue, at that loose lock of hair, 
at the blue and red plaid shirt and the white vest beneath it, the silver chain that hangs in the hollow between her breasts. His breath hitches, and he thinks he makes a wheezing sound deep in his chest. He knows that he should say something, anything. Something like, gate secure, or you okay? Or ask her about the fucking weather in Alaska, but he doesn't. Because all he can see is her and her eyes, and her hair, and the delicate pout of her lips. And that's when she reaches up and undoes her shirt. She's purposeful, slow, deliberate, eyes never leaving his. Fingers nimble as she pops the buttons out of their holes and lets it slide from her shoulders to the floor. He thinks it's a dare. He also thinks it's an invitation. Truth is, she could just be getting ready for bed, but that's the crazy side of his brain talking. The non-believer. The little boy who got laughed at by the other kids for his shabby clothes and too long hair. The lost man who got ditched by Junie Day despite their shared beginnings. Beth's not getting ready to go to bed. He knows she's not. He knows this is different. It's a challenge. She's asking him if he's brave enough to take what she knows he wants, to end this game after months of dancing around it, to let this thing between them run the course nature intended from the day Zack died and he took his place in her cell. Even so, when she tugs her vest over her head and stands there mostly naked, and he can't bring himself to look at her, to drop his gaze from her eyes and her face. He hears himself asking her what she's doing in a voice that isn't his, but rather that of a man both much older and much younger. What are you doing, Beth? What are you doing? What are you doing? And for a second she looks shy, and her gaze wavers, drops to ground where she stares at her tatty teddy socks, biting her lip. And then she closes her eyes, squares her shoulders, and looks at him dead on, and it's that Beth Green look. The one that frightened him and comforted him in the cabin. The one that killed and saved him at the funeral home. You know. Her voice is soft but firm. And he does know. He does know. He knows when she undoes her jeans, shimmies out of them. Her socks, too. He knows when she hooks her thumbs into her panties and glances at him again, and then leaves them. He knows when it seems she's asking permission, approval. He has to know, like she has to know. But still he wavers. Still he falters, and he tells himself he's not sure. And he knows when she holds her hand out to him. You know. And he wants to take her hand and hold it, and let her draw him into the room and down onto the nest of billows. But it feels like the doorframe is the only thing holding him up, the only thing tethering him to this world. And he wants to hold that, too, because he knows it. Because he understands it, and he doesn't understand Beth Green in front of him. Doesn't understand the cool line of her pale flesh, the hardness of her nipples, the curve of her small breasts, the sharp hip bones, and the shadows below. This Beth that saps his strength and leaves him helpless. This Beth that lives in the marrow of his bones. And he thinks that if he lets go, he'll be sucked into a world he can never navigate his way out of, and worse, one he won't want to leave. But the truth is, he already doesn't want to leave. It makes no difference one way or the other, really. He's here. He'll always be here. She says his name again, and he realizes he's leaving her hanging, leaving her standing there, leaving her frightened and shy, 
and he unclenches his fists, not sure whether it's to take her hand or let the heat out of his, and steps awkwardly across the threshold. He thinks this might be okay. This might be them. This might work. Beth, he starts. You know, she says again as she closes the distance between them, and her hands rise to rest on his biceps. And there's nothing left to say. No words, no sounds. Nothing but his own grunted realization. His own acknowledgement of her and him and them. And this thing they have. Oh. Oh. Safe Up Here With You by Dynamic Symmetry Chapter 7 In a Fire Now We Will Go Part 2 Getting down there is more of a hassle now, but it can be done. He left a pair of the gloves on the seat of the bike, and he takes them with him, stops at the roadblock they made, and unwinds the two wires. We half expected to find a walker pinned against them, maybe more than one, but there's nothing in sight, nothing he can hear. Quiet, late morning, the distant piercing cry of a hawk, the breeze in the treetops. He stands for a moment, one of the wires wrapped around his gloved fist, head back and eyes closed, letting the sun bathe his face. Hope is such a treacherous road now. But he wants to walk it. He wouldn't have come up here with her if he wasn't committed to doing so, if he wasn't willing to risk what he has to risk, and do what he has to do. And she would want that, he's sure. She would want him to take that road, follow it to the end. She would want him to try. Possibly this wasn't a tremendous fucking mistake after all. When he pulls up the big road through town and cuts the engine, everything is still quiet except for the distant rattle moan of the walkers pushing at the chain link, and even that seems more subdued than it did. They sound like they're getting discouraged, losing their focus with nothing to zero in on in sensory range, and maybe they're slipping back toward their mysterious kind of biological sleep mode. The sound of the bike engine probably woke them up again, but it's possible that it will, less and less each time. Maybe there won't be many more times anyway. Maybe this can be the last time. You fucking idiot. But he's not hearing that as he climbs off and heads toward the story parked in front of. It's small, ragged blue awning hanging over the door and emblazoned with a heavily stylized drawing of a mountain peak and a few pine trees. The big picture window announces gifts and souvenirs, and behind it are displayed exactly that. T-shirts, books, pins, big cheap figurines of bears and wolves, soaring eagles. Useless shit, especially now, but he's not here for them. He knows stores like this, has been through more than a few since the world went to shit, because they often contain shelves of dry fruit and nuts and various kinds of chocolate, and he knows they also often contain something else. None of the glass is broken, but the door is locked. He wraps his fist in his bandana, smashes out the glass by the handle, pulls it open. Inside it's dim and silent, racks of clothes and case after case of trinketry forming a weird half-seen funhouse maze. But as his boots crunch over the scatter of glass, his bow is already up. He got stupid before. 
It's not happening again. He's not dying on a run like this, for this. In addition to everything else, it would be fucking humiliating. Because part of him regards the fact that he's even here as humiliating, as ridiculous, risking his life for bullshit she won't care about, that will probably mean nothing to her, that has nothing whatsoever to do with keeping either of them alive. Except it does. It really does. It does, in every way she would understand, because she always loved the beautiful things that had no reason to be there other than their own beauty, and those things were taken from her, and it's not right. It's not how it was supposed to be. And she smiled at him. Right on cue, groans shuffle from the back behind a long counter that runs almost the length of the wall. He stands and waits, unperturbed, as a tall, skinny figure dressed in a rotting blue sales clerk uniform emerges from the shadows and stumbles toward him, eyes like dusky marbles in the thin light. It's a few yards away, already reaching for him, when it catches a foot on a fallen rack of sweatshirts and pitches forward with a grunt that sounds almost exasperated. Oh, come on! At the same moment, his bolt hits it between the eyes and snaps its head satisfyingly back, orange and gold fletching standing out oddly bright as a shaft of sun catches it. The walker crumples and lies still. Daryl bends a knee and jerks the bolt loose, straightens and listens. Nothing else. If there was anything else, it or they would almost certainly have come as soon as they heard the first one. Still. He cocks the bow, reloads, lifts it, and moves on. The place seems bigger than it should be, more maze-like the longer he's in it, but tucked in a half-hidden alcove near the counter, he finds it. Not large, not a huge selection, but it's better than nothing. Good enough that he won't have to search anywhere else, and when he turns the spinning rack, the dangling gold and silver and beads glitter in the same shaft of sun that caught the bolt. Earrings, necklaces, pendants and bracelets. He studies them, looks up and down. He'll know it when he finds it. He'll know them. In the days after they ran, he started noticing things about her. Wasn't fully aware that he did, or that he was carefully tucking each observation away into the metal filing cabinet where he tends to keep them, and always has. He noticed the journal, noticed the braid in her hair and how she maintained it, noticed all the tiny things she did to keep herself human. He noticed her jewelry, how she always wore it, which could be explained easily enough as her simply forgetting that she had it on at all, but he knew her well enough by then to know that wasn't it. Her earrings those delicate little flowers, the gold heart around her neck, lying against her breastbone, her bracelets. They were her, as much a feature of her as anything else about her, not just something she wore, because everything she kept and wore and did was a kind of resistance, a strike against the dark, the deepest and most fundamental manifestation of who she was, who she is, still, under everything, has to be. He turns the rack like a turbine, as if it could power something, a full steady rotation and then another, allowing his eyes to unfocus slightly. The glitter and flash catches him, pulls him in. He recognizes the slowing hyperattention of hypnotism. This is also stupid. He really shouldn't be letting that happen, but he does, and the fifth time around he stops the turn hard enough that the dangling chains and earrings swing. He picks one of the earring pairs off the rack and holds it up. Small, five-petaled flowers, what looks like aquamarine. Not the same as what she had, but close, and the blue of the stones will set off her hair, be set off by it, make her brighter. He pockets it, turns the rack again. It doesn't take nearly as long to find the other things he wants. Bracelets and wrist cuffs hanging on a thin plastic tube. He slides five of them off and hooks his fingers through them, examines them. 
brown leather thongs beaded with blue and green and gold glass, plain spherical beads, but also cubes, stars and more flowers, even more complex shapes. Again, it's not much like anything she wore before, a little fancier for one thing, but it's close enough. And lifting them into the light, staring through them with his gaze dancing from bubble to bubble and imperfection to imperfection, they feel so much like her. She'll like them. He knows she will. Into his pocket to join the earrings, another turn, to the necklaces and pendants. And there's the last thing. Very simple. Very plain. A silver chain from which dangles a bird in flight, wings fully spread and head raised as if it was cast in mid-song. He slips it free and cradles it in his palm, staring down at it, imagining, undoing the clasp, nudging her hair aside, laying it against her throat, sliding the clasp back into place, a fingertip against the warm, soft skin at her nape, downy blonde hair above the top of her spine. He closes his fist and squeezes his eyes shut. Stop. But there's a point in reference to whatever to something he doesn't want to see, doesn't want to know, at which he won't be able to. And he's no idea where it is. He leaves, and he's almost hurrying. He could be done. For a moment he thinks he is, until he remembers something else. Her hair, what she used to do with it, and it's shorter, but it's long enough to get tangled now, and it's lengthening all the time. He makes his way down the street toward the pharmacy he hit the first time here, and inside he stops at the half-aisle devoted to cosmetics and accessories. He scans past eyeshadow and foundation and lipstick, nail polish and manicure sets, until he reaches the brushes and the hair ties, and he picks up one of the former and a multicolored pack of the latter, elastic, simple as anything he's found for her, but wound through with faintly glittering metallic thread. Maybe she can't make much use of them now, or wouldn't want to, but soon. And he stands there with these things in his hands, the almost unnoticeable weight of the jewelry in his pockets. And maybe it's not true, and maybe he's overreacting because it's been a fucked up few days and he's very aware that it's fucked him up pretty badly, even if he's managing. But he thinks about these things he's found for her, and the candy, and the girl into which she keeps transforming, a younger girl, much younger, immature enough to be a specific kind of petulant and resentful and generally difficult. And he thinks about feeding her and putting her to bed, and he thinks about her breast and the firelight and her nipple, and how he knows that if he cupped her it would be a hard little nub fitted against the creases of his big palm, and he almost hurls the brush through the window. Stop! She's not a fucking child. He shoves these last two things in his pockets and stalks out of the store, climbs on the bike, chews up the road. Behind him and falling away, the rattles and moans of the pendant walkers echo, off the walls of his ear canals. She's waiting for him. She's sitting on her bed, bent over the journal she's resting on one cross leg, and he can tell even at a distance that she's not writing the way she was. It's not that desperate and constant scrawling, the same motions over and over again, once more that terrible resemblance to a machine. The movements of her hand vary as she carries the pen down the page, and now and then she pauses. He clears his throat, and she looks up, a startled jerk of her head, and pulls the journal in close to her chest as if she still expects him to snatch it away from her and hurl it into some abruptly existent fire. Christ, why? Sudden hot frustration grips him. Why does she have to do that? It wasn't him that burned it anyway. He grits his teeth, shoves it back. Not now. 
Not when he has these things for her and he's going to put them in her hands. You're all right, he says quietly, lifting the crossbow strap off his shoulder and leaning it against the low side of the sofa, and it's both a statement and a question. Nothing. Just her wide eyes and wide gaze frozen on his face. Then, slowly, she nods, and equally slowly he goes to her and crouches. He's not sure what he's expecting. But she closes the journal and sets it aside, pushes up to her knees and shifts closer to him. You said you were going to bring me something. Yeah. Moment of truth. Maybe he should be more nervous than he is. His fingers are barely shaking as he reaches into the pocket containing the jewelry and lifts it out, opens his hand to her, and lets those pretty little things shine in the sun. Same sun that makes her shine the same damn way. She looks down at them, expression unreadable, eyes unreadable. She doesn't move, not an inch. He can hardly even detect any breathing. All at once, he's not sure he's breathing, either. On some saner level, he knew when he decided to make this run that she might very well stare blankly at these things, even reject them. But she's not. She's just looking at them, the distant outline of a thoughtful frown behind her brow. And as he watches her with his lungs rolled up like window shades, she lifts a hand and plucks the necklace out of his spread palm, holds it up, and follows the smooth spin of the bird with her unreadable eyes. The corner of her mouth tugs ever so slightly upward, a twitch that halts and keeps its place. He can breathe again. He reaches down with his free hand and gently takes hers, curls his fingers around it, still soft, still cool. That bruise. That, too, was yesterday. He won't be like that now. Come on. He helps her to her feet and leads her to the downstairs bathroom. He's never seen her look at herself, not since he lost her for the second time. It's a very strange thing. Standing in front of the mirror, him standing behind her, he watches her tilt her head this way and that, following her own movements with a vaguely nonplussed look on her face, and he thinks of footage of animals he's seen who catch sight of themselves in a mirror and become convinced that they're looking at a potential enemy, or merely another animal, as confused as they are, the bafflement continuing until they notice that there's no sound or scent, and they lose interest and wander away. It's bad to think of her like that. He doesn't want to. But he does anyway. He fitted the earrings into her lobes when it became obvious she wasn't sure what she was supposed to do with them, and she kept still and turned when he turned her. Except for the once she hasn't spoken since he came back, but she hasn't made any move toward making a problem out of things, and he'll take it and be satisfied. He wasn't sure about the bracelets, but when he finally decided to suck it up and lift her forearm, fiercely ignoring the bruise, and slide her hand through one of those leather loops, she suddenly seemed to get the idea and did the rest herself. When she was done, she kept her arm raised, gazing at the beads, apparently lost in contemplation. So he let her do that for a while. Then he turned her toward the mirror and gathered her hair and pushed it to one side, took the necklace in his hands, unclasped it. He can do this. It's not going to be like that. Like in his traitorous mind. You remember what you had before? He's not moving fast, settling the bird beneath the hollow between her collarbones and lowering it to rest against her sternum. He's also not expecting any response from her. He's just talking, because he's not sure he's entirely comfortable with the silence in here. I know this isn't totally like it. I think I did okay, though. 
Looks good on you. Looks right. Couldn't find any hearts, but I thought you'd like the bird. Maybe. She's quiet. Gives no sign now that she even heard him. She could be lost in herself again, lost in her own reflection, understanding nothing. When she goes in there, he still doesn't know how to bring her back. All he can do is what he can do. He closes the clasp and releases the chain. And for an awful moment, he's sure he is going to do it. Won't be able to stop himself. His fingertip will linger, his fingertips, her skin and how smooth it is and how it's so good to touch it and feel a life flooding deep under it like an underground river. He doesn't. He pulls his hand away and her hair covers her nape again. He thought this might be the point at which it would come back to her. This might be when he would really see something in her, recognition, or even memory, and she might touch these things and know them and comprehend what he was trying to do for her. He was trying to reach her, and she might be reached. It's so stupid to hope, but he hoped. He found some faith and held on and refused to let go. But she tilts her head again and blinks, and he knows he's not going to get anything from her. And he finds that he's barely disappointed. He's just very tired. Without his intending them to, his hands found her shoulders, and now they leave and drop loosely to his sides. He tried. It's a dull thought, and it does nothing to block the oncoming grayness he can sense around the edges of everything, but he supposes it still does count for something. And these pretty little things are pretty on her. It's good to see. All right, he murmurs, and he starts to turn away, heading for the door, because this isn't a large room, and suddenly it feels far too small. But she whirls and catches him, curls her arms around his middle and holds on, her head pressed against his chest. She's on him before he knows it, and before he can stop himself or work up any inclination to do so, he's reciprocating, his own arms wrapped around her and hugging her tight. She did this before, and all he could do is touch her fucking elbow because she blindsided him. He wasn't ready for that. There was no way he could ever be ready for that, warm and solid against him, small and strong, whatever she used to wash her hair that day so fresh and clean and filling him up when he inhaled. Not the same scent when he lowers his head and rests his cheek against the crown of hers. Not the same soap. But still fresh. Still clean. And she's still small and strong, and she's so, so alive. Time warps, twists in on itself. He doesn't want to move, and it might be that sheer desire to stay in the moment that keeps the moment going. It's so easy to hold her like this. Easy like it might eventually have been if she hadn't been taken what they might have had, might have done, but he can't. Stop. He extricates himself, hands once more on her shoulders as he steps back. Her face is still difficult to read as she stares up at him, but she's alert, and her gaze is narrowed in on him, narrowed sharp. She does see. He got what he wanted, but he's not sure she did. Dinner is quiet, and not by candlelight, because the sun is still in the process of setting. He left her alone for most of the rest of the day, not done much of anything. He sharpened his knife and put it away, waxed the crossbow string, wandered the house again, as if he wasn't well acquainted with every foot of it by now. He picked that afternoon to go through one of the bedroom closets, the unlabeled boxes, which proved to contain nothing more useful or interesting than a bunch of photo albums and some old clothes, ties, Shirts, 
a hat, vaguely like Dale's. He put it away again in the bottom of the box, piled everything else on top of it. He didn't look at the photo albums. He doesn't want to know. This place already feels full of cold, impersonal ghosts. Ghosts of the house itself and all its things, rather than the person or people who used to live here. He doesn't want to give those ghosts faces and names. It's really better if they aren't human in origin. She read, as far as he knows. Made her strange rounds at the bookshelves, touching, running her fingers over their contents. He wonders if she's selecting the things she'll destroy in the morning. Then dinner. Canned beans, canned sausage. Tomorrow he really needs to go out and see what he can find in the way of fresh things, greens if nothing else. There might be gardens in town. He hadn't wanted to go back there so soon, but he should look. Should have looked today, but he didn't want to stay any longer than he had to. He'll be all right. She finishes, sets down her spoon, looks up at him. He freezes and looks back, and he knows before she even opens her mouth that she's going to ask him something, and he's not going to like it. No idea how he knows. Maybe just because he's actually getting to know this bizarre, capricious, remotely demonic creature she's become. You going out tomorrow? He grunts. Might. All right, well, she pauses, chewing at her lower lip. There's a spot of grease at the corner of her mouth, and he wants so badly to wipe it away. If you do, and you won't take me, can you get me some meat? She doesn't mean to cook. She doesn't mean spitted and roasted. He knows that, too. She had some. She's assuming she can have more. That he'll allow it. Facilitate it. Didn't he get her to help him bring back the carcass? For her to eat? How else was she supposed to interpret that? He's so fucking stupid. And he got what he wanted. And she'll be so much easier to handle if she does too. He meets her gaze without flinching, without giving in to the violent, nauseating clench in his gut. It's not just her eyes. It's the blue glitter of her earrings, the glassy sheen of the beads circling her wrist. It's the singing bird in flight. This is Beth. There's nothing he wouldn't do for her. Yeah, I will. Later, by the fire, he brings her another bowl and sets it down on the floor where she's sitting and writing. Then he sits down beside her, nudges it closer to her with a soft scrape against the flagstone hearth. She folds the book against her chest, still looks apprehensive, but then she glances at the contents of the bowl, and her apprehension melts. She reaches out a hand, presses her fingers into it, and rakes them through. The dull rattle is like her beads. He watches her, eyes, mouth, every muscle shift and every hinted emotion, and tries to breathe. At last she raises her head. She's not smiling, not exactly, or he can't see it if she is. But her face is doing something. It's not blank. Not at all. I like the blue ones best, she murmurs. He nods. I know. They're all blue. Every one. He sorted them out, set them aside. I told you. Yeah, you did. She scoops a few into her cup palm and lifts them, peering at them as if she's come upon them at random, completely unexpected. By the fire. She turns her head and her earrings sparkle like tiny stars gone silver in the firelight. After, 
after we burned it? Oh my god. He exhales heavily, too heavy to be a sigh. Fuck not hoping. How is he supposed to do anything but hope? She never allowed him to do anything else. She blocked off every other avenue and foreclosed on every other option. He had to hope. There was no other way to be with her. And by the end, being with her was all he wanted. After we burned it, he whispers. You gotta stay who you are. She lowers her face, her eyes, and tucks the journal into her lap. She picks up one of the M&Ms, lifts it to her lips, slips it between them, and closes her eyes. If the entire room was on fire, he wouldn't be able to look away from her. Not who you were. Not even a whisper. Carried out of him on a breath in his paper. She nods slowly and doesn't open her eyes, plucks up another M&M and holds it between her forefinger and thumb, extends it toward him. This is communion, he thinks, with all the sudden wild force of a summer storm, wind howling through his skull. This is a fucking Eucharist. She's trying to save his soul. They're in hell together, but she's still trying because she can't stop. Because even broken and scared and lost, even shattered into too many pieces for him to ever reassemble, she can't stop trying. This is Holy Communion, which he has never in his life taken, because it would be an empty act in praise of a god who was never there. But he does believe in her. He could take it in his hand. He doesn't. A dream is descended on him, drifting to him through the light, settling over both of them like a canopy. Anything might be possible, so everything is. So he keeps his hands planted on the floor and leans in, closes his lips around her sanctified fingers, and sighs as the sweetness melts onto his tongue. He doesn't touch her again, doesn't watch her go to bed. He sits in front of the fire as she leaves, and he doesn't look over his shoulder. He listens to the sounds of her moving around, going upstairs, coming back down, the rustle of her sheets as she slides between them. He stares into the flames until they've burned themselves into his vision, dancing and leaping in purples and greens and blues. He might be trying to make himself blind. Stop. But it doesn't take. His eyes fly open in the dark, in the moonlight, and he thinks it might be like before. He might have to tear himself up and out, destroy the space between them and hold on to her. Keep her from spinning into the night, over the cliff edge to explode on the rocks below. He's on his side, sheets tangled around him, but he's ready. Staring at her, muscles tense to spring, watching her twist and writhe. Except she's not screaming. It's not screaming that woke him. He can see her across the room, distant, her pale outlines rising and falling in graceful sine waves as she lifts her hips to meet the hard, rhythmic thrusts of her hand. She stripped and kicked the sheets down into a mound around her ankles, stretched out with a firm grip on her breast and twisting at her nipple, her legs spread wide and her other hand working between them, palms smacking against her mound and almost drowning out the wet squelch of her cunt as she fucks herself. No idea how he's hearing that over her gasps and ragged moans, but he is. No idea how he can see the sheen of her juices smeared across her inner thighs, but he does. Because she's not across the room at all. She's close. 
Lying beside her like this, he can see everything. And now it's not moonlight soaking her, but the last of the light from the coals, somewhere between crimson and oil black. He can see the sweat beating her skin, the cord standing out on her neck as she throws her head back, the silver bird gone gold and fallen against her throat. Red stars in her ears as she rolls her head from side to side, mouth gaping as the noises forcing the way out of her deepen and roughen. He can look down and watch her pinch her nipple, tug cruelly at it, torment it into a hard little peak and go to work on the other one. Her waist lengthens and folds as she crunches herself up, falls again, lifting herself with her feet planted flat against the mattress, the rattle of cut glass at her wrist. You can see her juices beating in her pubic hair and clumping the curls together, her slick fingers as they pump in and out of her cunt, quick glimpse of her clit swollen past its hood as her palm lifts and grinds down again, her lips sticky and squeezed beneath her hand, beaded strands stretching between the two. She's so wet. She's so fucking wet. He shouldn't be able to see any of this, but he does. He sees everything. And the light is spilling over her and staining her red, all that sweet wetness between her legs, the color of blood. It is blood, her shining lips streaked with it, a line of spit on her cheek, not spit at all, and congealing. And when she shakes and wrenches herself up as she fucks in as deep as she can, her bare teeth are those cut rubies. She's bathed in it, fed and contented herself, and now she's doing this, because apparently being dead is no obstacle to making herself come. Oh, God! Frantic, every muscle tense and tight and looking ready to bust through her skin, both hands on her cunt now, fucking encircling her pounding clit. Oh, my God! Oh, God! Oh, oh, oh! He's so close, he can smell her. Smell her sweat and her sex. Smell what it would be like to bury his face in between her legs and eat her alive feed on her, be the one drawing those sobs out of her, dig his teeth into her and rip at her with one hand on his cock. He does, he is, jerking himself rough and fast with his pulse thudding in his throat and his head, but all he sees and feels and wants is her. Flesh and blood. Meat. Reaching for her with his free hand as she arches higher and higher and finally extends so far and so sharp he thinks she might be about to snap her spine. And he hooks his fingers under the chain around her neck and folds the bird into his hand, squeezes it so hard he feels its beak piercing him, and the narrow jab of pain is what kicks him over the cliff with her, spurting hot and thick all over his fist and her hip and belly, and biting back his cry she lets hers go. Oh, Jesus Christ, Daryl! Shaking still. All control he ever had burned away. And somehow through the flood of his orgasm, he can focus on the blood spattered over her and coating her thighs and her spasming hands, across her skin and his fingers and his shaft running down his knuckles, dripping from the slashes across her face, trickling down her brow from the hole in her head. Sun stabs into his eyes. He twitches, groans, rolls away and folds an arm over his face, burrowing into the pillow. His head hurts. Everything hurts. His arm was better, but now whatever he did to it is grinding beneath his skin, joints like scraping boulders every time he moves it. Sitting up seems like a questionable decision, but he does it anyway, because that seems to be how he operates these days. He didn't even drink. Not that he recalls. He stays put for a few minutes, hunched over with the sheet slipped down low on his waist and his hands pressed against his eyes, until he feels capable of getting up and looking at anything for more than a few painful seconds. 
He rolls to his knees and shoves himself to his feet, hissing with pain as his arm flexes again, and pushes his hair back from his face as he squints toward the mattress by the window. No one, of course. The sun is high enough to shine. She'll be out on the deck, doing what she does. He stumbles across the room toward the window and the sliding door, contemplating painkillers, contemplating the possibility that he hurt himself worse than he thought, or somehow hurt himself all over again. Slept the wrong way, twisted under him. Didn't feel it until now. It could be possible. Anything could be. He sees her, her small form swallowed up by her t-shirt, bent over the railing with her hair bright halo combed by the wind. Like before, like all the times before, and he stops, gazes out at her, lays a hand against the glass and pulls air into his lungs, like taking a long swig of whiskey, hoping it might dull something. Not that it ever would. He's alive, and she's alive, and that means it's going to hurt. It never meant anything else. Something glitters in her hand, winking as the sun plays over it. He follows it, bemused. It's not anything he recognizes from the shelf. Not in the other part of the house, as far as he can recall. She extends her hand and it dangles, wrapped around her fingers. Silver in the morning. Silver. He slams both hands against the glass, everything in him surging into a scream and ready to tear out of him, crack his chest with the force of itself, but he can't do anything. He can't ever do anything. The bruise on her wrist is stark, hideous, purple-black, exposed, naked. He doesn't have to see her earlobes to know that no flowers are blooming there. He watches as she lets that silver bird fly. Let's it fall. Pain stabs into his left hand and he whines, jerks it away like the glass has burned him. For a split second he's sure it has. But it's not burning. He sees what's there in the center of his palm and his veins fucking crystallize. A prick, tiny and red. Not bleeding, but it was. Something that could have been made by a pin. Could have. Wasn't. Hope is the Thing by Shuzi. It's a few minutes past midnight when Daryl wanders onto the porch, drawn by the gleam of moonlight on her outstretched arms. Midnight used to be small potatoes to a degenerate like him, but it's considered late these days. Beth might be used to it. Beth, the good farmer's girl, who he bets never went to bed after eleven, never wandered the streets till dawn, living off a pilfered six-pack and the tail end of a cocaine huff. Never had to hitch it back with a man requiring service for the pleasure. Has never known the dead of night, only the birth of morning. Daryl is used to his midnights, but in this new world, where kerosene is scarce and darkness aplenty, it's not often they stay awake far beyond dusk. It's strange to think that this is how their ancestors lived for thousands of years, living and dying by the whims of the moon and sun, the rise and fall of seasons. For a man like Daryl, who has always lived close to the earth, there's a kind of peace in it, 
but there's nothing strange in nights spent sitting with her, close in the candlelight. Her eyes fly open when she hears his step, and his heart flutters at the speed with which she relaxes, welcomes his presence. She spread a blanket out across the deck, well back from their makeshift alarm system, he notes with satisfaction. She's done up in a set of clothing they found in the upstairs, sweatpants and a man's sweater that goes down to her knees. Daryl wonders why she's wearing the pants. Is she sleeping with them, or did she put them on just to come down here? Is it for safety or modesty? Does she know what the sight of her bare legs would do to him? What even the thought of them, the sight of her swimming in these clothes, already does? Is that coyness in her smile, or just the angle of her face? She raises an arm to beckon him closer, but how close does she want him? He hovers above her, hands shaking a little. Couldn't sleep, he asks. No, she says. You? Yeah. Thinking too much? He gives her a crooked smile. Thought you knew me better than that. Beth smiles, baring her little white teeth. Silly me, thinking Daryl Dixon has thoughts. She raises her hand again, beckoning. Come on, sit a while. Ain't got nothing better to do, right? Guess not. Daryl swings his ever-present crossbow down from his shoulder, setting it carefully next to the blanket and sitting beside Beth's stretched-out body. She laces her hands on her stomach and looks up, features soft in the moonlight. Daryl follows her gaze into the night, into the carpet of stars spread above their heads. It's many long minutes before she speaks. Do you want kids, Daryl? she asks. His head whips down so quickly his neck cracks. What now? Not necessarily. Her hands are still twined over her stomach. Soft stomach. Pale stomach. He'd seen a flash of it when they were washing once before they found the home. He'd heard a sound from the opposite bank and turned, and there she was, breasts peaked and clinging to the white cotton of her bra and stomach downy and smooth and begging for the slip of his hand. But he couldn't do that. Wasn't owed it. Didn't have the words to even begin. But here she is, stretched out beneath him with a shirt baggy around her middle, and it isn't hard to imagine... Daryl swallows the lump in his throat, shifts in his seat. Why, you ask? Beth shrugs. He's startled to see a tear track down her temple. I don't know. That whole time we were running, I couldn't let myself. There wasn't room to fall apart. She sniffs loudly. But now that we're here and safe... We ain't. Not really, he says quietly, almost hoping she doesn't hear. I know. I told you, Daryl. I ain't blind. I know how easy it is for things to go wrong. I know you do. Hesitatingly, Daryl brings a hand up to touch her wrist, fleeting and awkward, and quickly pulled away. But she smiles at him for it, and that makes it all right. I just can't stop thinking about the last time I felt like this. Almost like this, she says, looking at him shyly. He touches her wrist again, and she breathes in, deep. Seems to decide something. It was my job to get those kids out. No one asked you to. Still my job, though, wasn't it? She tilts her head and looks at him. I ain't carrying it. You don't have to look at me like that. Daryl looks down at his hands. I know there was nothing I could have done. Saving myself was a job, too. I did that one. Good thing, Daryl murmurs, looking at her wrists, face burning again over what he said in the shack, how he hurt her. It's a shame he can't get past, through all the healing they're doing here, and he doesn't much want to. All the shit he's committed in his life, and the worst he ever done, he did that afternoon, spewing hate all over Beth Green. Never thought I'd be much good for a kid. Hey, don't be like that, Beth says. I've seen you with Judith. She smiles. You'd even wash your hands before you touch her. I don't mean like that. I mean, 
my own. Daryl picks at his ragged thumbnail, avoiding her gaze. Ain't much good for people dependent on me. You done all right by me. That's different. How? You did all that on your own, he wants to say. You got it all backwards. I'm the one needs you. Just is. Daryl squints out into the dark night, across the graves. My mama had a friend, he finally says. There was Miss Jan. Lived cross town from us. We went over there sometimes, when mama was sober enough to know we needed to. You and Merle? Sometimes. Time went on, it'd be just me and her. Then just me. Daryl looks down at the blanket, bunched up between them. She didn't leave the house much toward the end. I tried to get her to go out, see Miss Jan, round the block at least, but she wouldn't listen. Swelled all up like a balloon, like her whole life been stuffed inside her. That sounds hard, Beth murmurs. Daryl shrugs. It is what it is. He folds his hands across his knees, looks out into the night. Miss Jan had a baby girl, name of Precious. Born off of one of her tricks, some asshole truckers skipped town the minute he heard she was pregnant. But she built herself up, got a boyfriend, didn't beat her up every Sunday. It was nice there. Sounds like it. I didn't go over too often, you know. Merle kicked my ass if he knew. He never liked Miss Jan, thought she babied him. But you liked her? Daryl did like her. He liked her a lot. He liked her split-level house with its well-kept lawn, her cocker spaniel dancing around the sprinkler. He liked her hands, small hands, soft hands that held him when his mother was too lit to lift her head, sewed him up till he could do it himself, got to the places he couldn't reach. He liked the frilly aprons she wore sometimes, and the glittery trailer park varnish on her toenails that never quite washed away. He liked her long golden hair that smelled like cookies and baby powder, the songs she hummed as she cooked, the economical way she moved around her kitchen like it was an extension of herself. He liked the way she looked at him, like he wasn't too rough for this side of the tracks, like he could belong. As he grew, he began to like other things. He liked the way her ass moved beneath her yoga pants, the shadows of something he spied through the worn fabric. He liked her small breasts and the Calvin Klein bras she left on doorknobs and countertops. He liked it when she'd comment on how much she'd grown, how strong he looked. She squeezed his bicep once, and he spent that night heaving tires in the junkyard until he collapsed from exhaustion. He liked imagining her fucking in her big warm bed with her sweet warm boyfriend, cunt artfully trimmed and skin moisturizer soft. He liked picturing himself locked in that room for days, just holding her, listening to the settling of the house. But most of all, he liked her daughter, like this squiggly little thing he could hold in his arms and read to and play with and pretend was his own. He liked feeling her little baby gums clamped around his scabbed fingers. He liked the way she looked at him and saw no scars, no despair, no hate. This little girl thought he was the sun and the moon because he fed her milk and held her close. Of course, Miss Jan didn't last. She and his mama stopped talking, and her boyfriend got a new job, and they hightailed it out of that hick town with hardly a goodbye. The day he arrived at her house and found it was for sale was the first time he got blackout drunk. He woke up three cities over next to a hooker from Grovetown, and therein went his virginity. It's been a long time since he thought of Miss Jan, her baby girl. Doesn't much want to think of them again in this big, harsh world. They ain't here no more, Daryl says. I miss the kids, Beth says quietly. Everything about this moment is quiet, like the world is holding its breath for them. I miss Judy, 
I must hold in her, the way she smelled. How she smiled when she looked at me. She laughs wetly. I even miss people thinking I was her mom. It feels like a disservice to Lori saying that, but I like to think she was mine. That I'd created something, even if it wasn't me. You know? You're a good mama to that girl, Daryl says. He can't stop touching her arm, running his fingers over the heavy fabric and the pinch of her bony limb beneath. He will be when we find her, too. Beth takes his hand, stills its restlessness. Look at you, she murmurs, being all hopeful. Daryl shrugs noncommittally, cheeks stinging. Yeah, say something enough, maybe I'll get to believe in it. I'm glad. Beth breathes in deep, holding his hand. I'm just thinking... It's so much to put on a little girl, all this hope. On any child. But that's where it all goes. No matter how crappy everything else is, I just think of that little girl out there in the world, and I feel okay. You really think there's hope for her? There's people like you, like Rick. Maggie and Glenn, Carol, Carl, Ty, and Sasha and Bob. Even if we ain't with her, she has family, looking out. There's hope in that guess so. She smiles, teasing. I know so. He smiles back. You do. His heart races when she tugs on his sleeve, shooting a glance at the blanket beside her. You know the constellations? Some of them. Show them to me. Heart racing, he lowers himself beside her, bites his lip as she shifts into his side so their arms are pressed together, her head a hair's breadth from his. He knows when she glances at him by the flutter of her eyelashes. He swallows and raises an arm to point to the sky. See that there? Looks like a teapot. That's the bow of Sagittarius, the archer. He's pointing his bow at the scorpion because legend says a scorpion killed his brother. See all that blackness? That's part of Virgo, mother. She only got one bright star, but she's one of the biggest there is. And that there is Orion. They lie there nearly till dawn feeling the gleam of the stars above and the creak of the porch slats, the tangle of moonlight in their hair. As the stars fade away with the rising sun, Daryl thinks they might be the brightest they've ever been. Someone like Dale might say the intensity of the stars is due to reduced smog in the atmosphere, the lack of man letting nature shine through. But Daryl isn't Dale, and Beth Green isn't Dale. And anyone qualified to make those statements probably didn't survive long anyhow. What do the stars know, anyway, of loss, of resilience, of hope? Looking at Beth's kind face, her twinkling eyes, he can't help but feel their brilliance as nothing but a mere reflection of the girl watching them. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that. Before I go, a uh, quick note. Uh, I don't know exactly when the next episode of this is going to be up, and I'm saying that because it may actually be up sooner than my normal bi uh, bi-monthly schedule, because I'm going to ReaderCon this coming weekend, and when I'm at ReaderCon, hopefully, if all goes according to plan, uh, I will be meeting up with Shuzi slash Molly slash Drift, and we will be hanging out and doing some talking that I will hopefully record. So... Uh, if any of you have any talking points that you want us to cover, if you have anything you'd like us to discuss, just, you know, shoot me an ask, message me, 
whatever. Just let me know somehow and uh, try to squeeze it in. And that'd be super cool. And I get back on Monday and I'll be really, really tired. Uh, but I will try to get it up as soon as I can. Probably will be the Monday after, but uh, uh, we'll see. In any case, I think I am doing a fairly good job getting back on schedule so far. So that should be cool. All right, I'm going to get going. Again, uh, watch for news regarding where the podcast is going to be in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I will keep you updated. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening, and I will speak to you soon. Bye.